Thank you, Georgia and Barbara. Good job. I took one violin lesson when I was in elementary school and decided for the sake of humanity that I would not take any more. That's a hard instrument to make sound good. Turn, if you would, this evening to Ephesians chapter 5. We survived the morning. No one threw any rocks through my windows today, so I count that a victory. We're talking about tonight walking in love, light, and wisdom. What is the danger of living in a time of spiritual darkness? Think of for a moment what it's like at night when you first turn out the lights. The darkness seems almost impenetrable. But after a few minutes, your eyes adjust to the darkness, and it doesn't seem quite as dark as before. The danger for Christians is that we become so accustomed to the level of darkness in our world that we think it's normal. Paul reminded the Christians at Ephesus that before Christ, we were people of darkness just like those around us now. But now through Christ, we have become children of light who are to be lights in the darkness. In his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, that he wanted the Christians to be blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Well, there are three things that I want you to see with me tonight as we look at this passage. First of all, walking in love. Verse number one says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks." First of all, he talks about being imitators of God. That's a pretty startling challenge if you stop to think about it. The word translated imitators literally means mimic. We are to be mimics of God. Present tense, continuous action. Something that we are to do now and to continue doing. We're challenged then to mimic or be imitators of God. Now let that sink in for a minute. How is it possible to imitate the infinite God of the universe? Dr. Boyce in his commentary notes the difference between God's transmittable 
attributes and his non-transmittable attributes. God's non-transmittable attributes are those that are uniquely his and we cannot share. Self-existence, self-sufficiency, eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. Obviously, those are attributes that we cannot share or hope to. However, there are attributes that God has that we can share. And the attribute that Paul is most interested in our emulating is love. And the nature of God's love is sacrificial. So tonight we want to examine how imitating or mimicking God should alter our walk or our conduct. Normally, when we speak of someone walking, we're talking of how they move physically from one place to another. However, that is not the sense in which the word is used here. It can also refer to a person's conduct of life. And that is what they do with their life and how they live their life can be described as their walk. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul uses the word walk six times. And each time that he does so, he uses it in the sense of one's conduct or manner of life. The one attribute of God that Paul particularly wants us to imitate is God's sacrificial love. And then in verses 3 and 4, he lists off six intolerable sins. Paul says that Christian lives are not to have even a hint of immorality. He says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness that not even be named among you as it is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. First of all, the word that is translated fornication is talking about sexual immorality. It is the word pornea. It's a word that we get pornography from. It is a word that is usually translated fornication, but in reality is a general term that encompasses all kinds of sexual sin. Next, he lists uncleanness or impurity particularly in mind at this point, are prostitution and homosexuality. And then covetousness or greed, uh, in, as it's outlined in Matthew 6, 4. Filthiness is obscenity. It's no regard for moral standards. Paul says that even words or jokes that are suggestive of immorality are unworthy of those who've been saved by the blood of Jesus. And then the next thing that is listed is foolish talk. It is literally moronic talk. One who talks like a fool. Concern here is not <clears throat> with intelligence, but with morals. These are individuals who make fun of moral standards. That encompasses almost all of our TV shows anymore. 
coarse joking. And the word jesting means literally able to turn easily. And that describes the person who is always able to turn something that is said into something dirty. You've all been around people like that before. Crude joking does not belong in the life of a Christian. One might be tempted to say, are you saying that Christians shall not tell jokes? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Humor is healthy. In fact, the Bible tells us that there is a therapeutic value of laughter. The book of Proverbs says in Proverbs 17, 22, a merry heart does good like a medicine. In fact, there's something wrong with the Christian who always exhibits a sour spirit. The Bible is not condemning laughter, but gutter humor. We also have to be careful what we laugh at. And this is something we ought to take into consideration with our television viewing. Because if we laugh at evil long enough, we begin a downward spiral that blurs our moral sensibilities. Brian Chapel, in his commentary on Ephesians says, when we are so familiar with the profane that it no longer offends us and we have forgotten how to blush because of it, we are in grave spiritual danger. After that, there's one more bullet point that you don't have in your outline, and it is no inheritance, verses 5 through 7. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no man deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Paul states that the immoral and greedy person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, but will instead experience the full wrath of God. In his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor ex- exhorters, extortioners <clears throat> will inherit the kingdom of God. But as Charles Swindoll points out, Paul does not mean that our salvation is forfeited if in a moment of weakness we fall into some form of immorality or covetousness because God knows that we are human and that we will sin. That's the reason for 1 John 1, 18. The difference is whether we deliberately persist in a lifestyle that resist the Lord, or whether the general tenor of our lives reflects a Godward direction. So it's not talking about momentary sin, it's talking about a lifestyle of sin. Paul warns believers not to be deceived 
by empty words that in fact rationalize sin. And we hear that almost every day in our world today. Secondly, he talks about walking in light. And first of all, he says, we are now light in the world. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. What's important here is to understand what Paul says and what he does not say. Paul does not say that before coming to Christ, we were in darkness. Note the distinction, but rather that we were darkness. We were actually a part of the problem. But now we are light in the Lord and we should walk as children of the light. Paul goes on to say that the fruit that is expected of these children of light is goodness, righteousness, and truth. Paul says that the believer, in verse 10, is to find out and to practice those things which please the Lord. Find out is to literally test and approve something. It was used to describe Greek soldiers who were tested in battle or precious metal that was proven genuine and valuable. As a child growing from infancy to maturity, they should be motivated less and less by the necessity of doing what is demanded while wanting more and more to do what is pleasing to their father. And as light, we must expose the darkness And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who are asleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Believers are not to be characterized with the unfruitful works of darkness, such as sexual immorality, impurity, greed. Instead, our task is to expose them. Things that are to expose are often so disgraceful that it is shameful to even speak of them. But by walking in the light ourselves... We don't go around saying you and you and you and you and you are guilty. That's not what it means by expose it. It means that by walking in the light ourselves, we can through our example and word expose by contrast those works of darkness. Thus, the need to be light ourselves, something that comes only from Christ. There is an illustration Forest found in the history of streetlights in our country. Do you know where streetlights in the United States came from? The story is told, at least, that Benjamin Franklin went outside his office in Philadelphia 
and thought it would be a good idea to have a light burning all night long. And so he lit a lantern outside his office. He didn't go on a campaign, put street lights on every street in Philadelphia. He just faithfully lit his lantern every night. But when his lantern was lit every night, others saw it, and they began to think, you know, that's a good idea. And before long, every street in Philadelphia had a street light. Today, as you go across America, just almost every street has a street light simply because one man said, I want to light up where I live. And that's where we see this being brought to bait. Number three, walk in wisdom. Verse number 15. So then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dispensation, but filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So what are the characteristics of those who walk wisely. First of all, they are careful. He says that you walk circumspectly. Carries the idea of walking carefully, of looking around carefully so as not to stumble. Have you ever gone up out of bed at night and because you didn't turn on a light, you end up crashing over something? Please tell me that you've done that because I don't want to be the only one that's done that. I ran into the same door two times in one night, successively, bam, bam, before it finally dawned on me that I was headed in the wrong direction. Paul says that we need to take advantage of the light that Christ has given us. It means walking intelligently, not in ignorance. The point is that it is foolish to stumble along through life and never seek to know the will of God. Instead of walking accurately, they miss the mark. They miss the road. They end up suffering some horrible detour. God wants us to be wise and to understand his will for our lives. Secondly, he says they buy up the time That is, they take advantage of the opportunities that are given to them. The phrase that Paul uses is redeeming the time. It means to make the most of every opportunity, or it can be translated in contemporary terms as seize the moment. This, Paul says, is necessary because the days are evil. The problem is uh, that we face is there, there are many difficulties in life, many openings for ministry that we must redeem. But what we find is 
Openings for ministry to others often come at inconvenient times. A friend who wants to talk, a child with a problem, the chance to lend a hand to someone in need, they often don't come at opportune times. And Paul is encouraging Christians to keep their lives uncluttered so that they can respond when a need arises. Because kingdom opportunities can get squeezed out of an already overly tight schedule. Which brings us to number verse 17, understanding the will of God. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When it comes to the subject of the will of God, you can hear a lot of different opinions on the nature and ability to discern God's will. Some people make it sound as if God's will is some kind of a fixed path that we can know and follow with absolute certainty. Others suggest that God's will is and always will remain a complete mystery. So how do you discover God's will? Well, first I want to give you some risky methods that people use in attempting to discern God's will, methods which you should not use. And then I want to give you three good methods of attempting to discern God's will. First of all, the risky methods of determining God's will. Number one is laying out a fleece. In the book of Judges, God called Gideon to go fight against the Midianites. Gideon decides to use a rather unusual method to determine God's will. This is how the message tells the story of Gideon and the fleece. It's found in Judges chapter 6 beginning in verse 36. It says, Then Gideon said to God, If you're really going to use me to save Israel as you promised... Prove it to me in this way. I'll put some some wool, fleece, on the threshing floor tonight. And if in the morning the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, I will know that you're going to help me. And it happened just that way. And when he got up the next morning, he pressed the fleece together and wrung out a whole bowl full of water. And then Gideon said to the Lord, please do not be angry with me, but let me make one more test. This time let the fleece remain dry while the ground around it is wet. And so the Lord did as he asked, and that night the fleece stayed dry, but the ground was covered with dew. Sometimes, even today, people will say, I don't know what the Lord wants me to do. Or I didn't know what he wanted me to do. So I laid out a fleece before the Lord. The only problem with that is that it is is a very immature, dangerous, and risky way to attempt to find God's will. Sometimes it goes something like this. You're driving along and you say, Lord, I don't know if this is the right decision. So if the next two stoplights are red and the third is green, then I will know you want me to do it. Sometimes we're like Gideon, though, when we get that sign. 
We say, now, God, I'm still not sure, so let's reverse it, and this time, let's make it the exact opposite. It sounds ridiculous when you say that out loud, especially in public. Nowhere in the Bible does God tell people to put a fleece out as a means of determining his will. The second risky method is going by your feelings. Sometimes people will say, I know what the Bible says, and then what word do they use? But, but I feel like this is the right thing to do. All I can say to you is that your feelings are wrong. Sometimes the wrong thing can feel right to us humanly. And sometimes the right thing can feel wrong to us humanly. So don't go by your feelings. They are an extremely unreliable way to discern God's will. And the third is by judging by an open door. And we've probably all been into that one. Sometimes people will say, well, the door just seemed to be open. That is not always the best way to determine God's will. Just because a door is open does not mean that you should go through it. Now, some reliable methods of determining God's will. First of all, the authority of God's word. When the Bible speaks, it is God speaking to you. And it's just up to you whether or not you're going to obey it. If someone comes to me and says, Pastor, I would like for you to pray with me about whether it's God's will for me to tithe. I can say to that person, no, I don't have to pray with you about that. Because the Bible makes it clear that it is your duty. It is your responsibility. I will pray that God will show you how you can be obedient in that area. If someone comes and says to you, I think God is telling me to leave my husband or wife and go with this other person. I'm going to say to them, no, he's not. God does not contradict his word. If God's word teaches it, you don't have to wonder about whether or not it's his will. If God's word forbids it, then you don't have to wonder or not whether it's his will for you to do it. God's will is found in God's word. His will is found in his word, but not found in what is called the flip it open method. Charles Swindoll calls it the flop it and point method. And no, I'm not making this up. This is a method that some people use in an effort to discern God's will. They take the Bible and they allow it to fall open and then they point. And then they read the the verse that their finger is on. Wherever it opens is judged to be God's word to you for this decision. Obviously, this is more hocus-pocus than it is discerning God's will. 
You could get the same advice that one man did. He let his Bible fall open, his finger pointed at the verse that said, and Judas went out and hanged himself. He didn't like that, so he tried it again. This time his Bible fell open and his finger pointed to the verse, and go and do thou likewise. God's will is obviously not found in that method, but rather in devotedly reading your Bible every day and asking God to take his word and apply it to your heart. Secondly, the agreement of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 14 says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The Holy Spirit does speak today. Never let anyone tell you that he doesn't. But there are a lot of religious individuals out there who claim to hear some kind of voice of God, some message from God, but when you examine it, it does not agree with the Word of God. I can assure you that the Holy Spirit never, ever contradicts the Word of God. He always confirms what God's written word says. And those people who claim to have received a message from God that doesn't agree with Scripture are false prophets. Christians must test the Spirit to see that they are of God, according to 1 John 4, 1. The Holy Spirit will speak in a still, small voice as we study Scripture We as human beings would like for him to write in letters across the sky or to take over radio and television and proclaim a message to us. But God the Holy Spirit still speaks in a small voice through his word. And then there's the the advice of godly people. This is the third reliable method in discerning God's will. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 15 says, And the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Of course, not just anyone's advice will do. We should avoid going to individuals that we know will tell us what we want to hear. We all have friends. And we all have friends that we know will sympathize with us and tell us what we want to hear. That's not going to help you discern God's will. It may be comforting to you, but it is not going to help you to discern God's will. When I need advice on investments, I go to someone who knows about the market or investments. When I want real estate advice, I go to someone who knows real estate. When I want advice on fixing a car, I go to John Joyce. I go to a mechanic. But when I need advice about God, I go to someone who knows God. The Bible says there is great value in going to a trusted Christian friend and saying, Hey, I need your advice. 
about finding God's will for me in this situation. I can almost guarantee you that if you will follow those three methods, that you will be able to find God's will, open his word, ask the Holy Spirit to teach you, and then seek out a trusted friend and say, I need some good godly advice. I need to know what God's will is for this situation in my life. Would you pray with me and would you help me? Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Ever true, ever needed. Our, our day is desperately dark. Certainly as dark as the days in which Paul wrote these words to the church at Ephesus. Maybe even more so. We are bombarded on a daily basis with ungodliness. It comes over the airways. It is available in every place we look. It's in magazines. It's in newspapers. It's uh, in advertisement. Uh, We are just bombarded. And we need your wisdom. And we need your guidance. Help us, Lord, to be remembering that we need to learn not to laugh at those things that are evil. Because little by little, we lose our sensitivity to the darkness. And what we begin to laugh at becomes acceptable in our sight. Little by little, the darkness overtakes us. Help us to be the light and the salt that you've called us to be in this world. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.